You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 19. You can see from our uh, title on the screen that we're dealing with a very easy, lightweight, non-controversial subject this morning. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Let's read down to verse 12 together and see what the Word of God has to say to us. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses... Because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. This is your word. And as we have gathered here in your name, all that we have done in our doing today, worshiping you in song, worshiping you with our hearts, worshiping you with our giving, worshiping you by providing our attention now to the reading and the understanding of your word. May you bless us in all these things and multiply them unto us. May our hearts be open to what your word says today, Lord. And and Lord, this is an issue, it's a subject, it's a topic that is charged. Our minds are filled with all sorts of things from our culture, from the world, from the courts. Lord, take us back now to the very beginning, to your word, because you were the one who defined and ordained and instituted marriage. And may we understand what it is to the best of our ability and what you intended by it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we talk about a topic like this, one of the dangers that we have as people reading the word and talking about the issue of marriage and divorce, and specifically divorce, is that we are indeed... uh, We have these things in our minds. You know, we've experienced things ourselves. There are some here who have been through the unpleasant experience of divorce. We have seen people go through it. We have seen people go through incredibly difficult and trying things. And so the danger that we always have is we look at the human condition and we look at situations and we use that to back into our understanding of something. But Because we are believers and because we believe in God's word, we come to God's word first and we let it define for us the subject matter. And you see, our experience, whatever our experience is, must come out of and and, and flow through the understanding of God's word. And so Jesus today, in dealing with this issue with the scribes and the Pharisees, was dealing with an issue where they were trying to entrap him And they were trying to back him in a corner. They were trying to really get him to take a side 
with one of the two prevailing views of that day, and we will talk about that. But I would like to encourage you this morning regarding this issue to attempt to clear your mind of what you may know or what you may have heard or what you may have seen and experienced in the world or from the courts. Because we are looking to God's law. God is the one who defined and instituted marriage. So here in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Now as we've been studying in this gospel, uh, we are now coming to the very end of Jesus' three-year or so ministry on the earth. And Jesus is now leaving the region of Galilee and heading down toward Jerusalem. In fact, as we're in chapter 19 here, in chapter 21 is the triumphal entry. So Jesus has left the Galilee region for the last time before the cross and is now headed toward uh, Jerusalem by way of the Jordan River, which is the way most people traveled north and south. And so he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and people were, of course, following him because of all that Jesus had done. His, his fame and his renown was so well known that there was a great multitude following him. And uh, as we have read up to this point in time, over and over and over, where Jesus would stop, the people would gather and he would teach and he would heal and he would minister to them. And the Pharisees, it says in verse 3, also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So Jesus is ministering, and in the middle of his ministering to the multitudes of healing them and teaching them God's word and blessing them, the Pharisees come and they try to stir up controversy. Now, I don't know about you, but this is, uh, you probably watch the news. I had to quit. I had to stop watching the news because it was every, everything I watched, I felt like it was just trying to stir up controversy, uh, asking a provocative question, trying to define something in a certain way, in a certain light, and say, don't you think this is wrong or don't you think this is the right way? And there's always a twist and always a slant to it. And these Pharisees were no different than our modern day journalists. They came to Jesus in the midst of this great multitude where Jesus was teaching, and they tried to bait him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You see, this was a hotly debated topic in their day. And their issue was over four verses of Scripture found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Really, it was over one verse, but I'll read it to you, and you're free to turn there if you like. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and these are the laws concerning divorce. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and there's the issue that they're arguing over, what is this uncleanness? And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house, and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and kicks her out, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, and then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, meaning with another man, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance." So they were having serious debates, serious division, and there were camps, and we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, of, of debate over what does this mean in Deuteronomy 24.1, because he has found some uncleanness in her. What was the definition of that? So the two prominent schools of that day, schools of thought, were from a, a rabbi named Shammai. He was the strict and conservative view. He was the unpopular view. The second was from the school of Rabbi Hillel, and he was the more lax, the more popular view, the more liberal of the two views. So yes, even in the Bible, we have conservative and liberal. And the debate, again, was over this issue of what is this uncleanness? What if this man finds an uncleanness in his wife? 
So their low view of women meant that their high ideal of marriage was constantly being compromised. They were looking at marriage strictly as the man and the wife, and they weren't looking at what God did. They were just looking at the man and the woman, and they were looking at this, this issue of the law and what is the right thing to do if there's a problem, and in particular this uncleanness. And it had devolved, I should say, I was going to say evolved, but it had devolved to the place that under the thinking of Rabbi Hillel, the, the liberal person, that a man, and these were things they had written down, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner, if she went around with her hair down, if her hair was not bound and, and neatly wound up on her head, or if she spoke to men in the streets, like saying, hello, how are you today? That was strictly forbidden. They viewed that as an act of defiance and flirtatious. If she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence, so no discussing in-laws. Or if she was a brawling woman, meaning someone who was boisterous, whose voice could be heard in the next house, how many of us would be disqualified because of that? And another rabbi in that same camp even went as far to say that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman that he liked better and considered more beautiful than her, and that he could actually define the uncleanness in her as he quote, saw someone more beautiful and wanted her instead. And so the issue of, as they phrased this uh, sentence to Jesus, they said, for just any reason. Can a man just divorce his wife for whatever reason he wants to divorce her? What if she finds no favor in his eyes anymore? What constitutes this uncleanness? So the school of Rabbi Shammai, the more conservative, understood that that uncleanness meant sexual immorality. And as we'll see in a few minutes, Jesus will agree, so to speak, with Rabbi Shammai. This very conservative view that that meant only sexual immorality, sexual uncleanness, meaning that she had not been faithful to her husband. The school of Rabbi Hillel understood uncleanness to mean any sort of indiscretion, even to the point where some rabbis, again, as we just read, you know, said if she burned his toast or whatever it might have been, that it was grounds for divorce. One prominent commentator today says that rabbis had many sayings about bad marriages and the bad wife. And they said that the man with a bad wife would never face hell because he had paid for his sins on earth already. Not saying whether or not he deserved it. We're not going there. Uh, they said that the man who is ruled by his wife has a life that is not life at all. They said that a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband, and the only way he could be cured is by divorce. And they even said, if a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her. Now, this was their view, and they were strictly looking at women. They weren't looking at the men. But the men also had issues, right? The men couldn't, were not free to do whatever they wanted. But apparently this was a problem that the Lord had to address in the law that occasionally a, a woman would, would do this thing. She would have a wandering eye, so to speak. But lest we uh, be down on women today, and we're not, believe, this, believe me, this is, we're going to be talking about both sides of the equation today. I wanted to draw your attention just for a smidgen of happiness back to the book of Proverbs, which says in Proverbs 5.18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs uh, nineteen fourteen: houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And Proverbs 31, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. So ladies, don't feel slighted this morning. We're dealing with what was a religious and had become a political issue in that day. And notice it says there in those verses we just read that they were testing him. They specifically came to get Jesus to pick a side. Jesus, do you support Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai? Do you support the conservative view or do you support the liberal view? Pick one, Jesus. Which side 
is right. Because in so doing, then Jesus would polarize the crowd. Because certainly in that crowd, there were some who fell underneath the one school of thinking, the liberal school of thinking, and there were others who fell underneath the conservative school of thinking. And so as we talk about this issue of marriage and divorce, let me draw your attention back to something the Lord himself wrote back in Malachi chapter 2. And this was addressing the issue uh, as the, the prophets often did, of, of how the, the hearts of the people had wandered away from the Lord. See, Jesus in a moment is going to take us all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God himself established marriage. But in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we find that Malachi the prophet is addressing not only all the other issues of how uh, the nation of Israel had gone wandering after other gods and left their first love and all of those things, but now he's coming down to specific issues, ways that they have offended the Lord. So in Malachi 2.14, it says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom, speaking to the men, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Men, you have dealt treacherously with your wives, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he, that is God, not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit, meaning the spirits involved in the marriage relationship? And why one? Why did God make them one? It says he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So we have a segment here in, in one of the prophet's writings where he's addressing the issue that the men were not dealing properly with their wives. They were treating them harshly and they had this harsh upper hand and they were ruling them in an ungodly way. And they probably had this liberal view of marriage and divorce. And so Jesus in verse four, Matthew chapter 19, he comes back and he, he answered these people and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. As is so often the case when we deal with issues in the marriage relationship, we go back to the beginning. We go back to the book of Genesis. Jesus does it here. Paul does it several times in his writings. So anytime we have a question, not only do we go back to the scriptures, but we go back to the origin. In the Bible, there's this thing we use as a principle of interpretation. It's called the principle of first mention. And so we go back to where God instituted something or where he first talked about it to understand his heart and how he defined it and how he instituted it. So Jesus does that here. And he says, have you not read that he, that is God, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female? So they are coming to test him. But now Jesus is going to turn it around to them saying, have you not read? Now, this was like a dagger to them because these were the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the men who studied the law, who memorized the law the copyists of the law. These are the people who knew the word of God best of all of the people. And so Jesus says, basically, don't you remember? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, drawing their attention all the way back to Genesis chapter one and how God at creation, God created man and woman. So what he's saying by drawing their attention to that fact is that God himself created man. He created man and woman. And as he draws their attention to Genesis chapter two in the next verse, and he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's bringing to the fact that this is what God did. Now keep in mind, God did this in the Garden of Eden. You with me? 
before the fall, before sin entered the world. So God and God alone has the right to say what marriage is. And I want to stop here and just put a, put a black line right, right there and just say, listen, no man, no human being, no court has the right to redefine marriage. God defined marriage. One man, one woman, before the fall, and this is a human institution that sits back at the very top of the family tree of civilization. This is how God defined it. And if you understand that, and if you're willing to accept that, because if you don't accept that, this is one of the very first things in the scriptures, then you are going to have problems with the rest of the Bible. Because God himself created man and woman. God has the right alone to declare how man and woman interact and how he wants those relationships to be formed and to look. Jesus goes back to before Moses because their hang-up was was with what Moses wrote. And Jesus says, let's go back to the very origins. One commentator said this in summary of all of that, if marriage is grounded in creation in the way God made us, then it cannot be reduced to a merely covenantal relationship that breaks down when the covenant promises are broken. You see, we're all sinners, right? Since the fall, we're all sinners. And when two people come together in marriage, whether it's a believing marriage or an unbelieving marriage or a mixed marriage, meaning one's a believer, one's not, that's not the issue. God himself has defined the rules for marriage, the rules of engagement. And he says then, so they are no longer two but one flesh. This is something that's very significant in God's eyes. What does the two becoming one flesh mean? You know, often in our marriage ceremonies, at least our Christian marriage ceremonies, we will traditionally have something like the lighting of the unity candle. And so when the the couple comes forward, we have a candle, uh, a large candle in the middle that's, that's not burning, and then we have two single individual candles that are smaller on the sides. And then we usually come to a portion of the service where we pause and they step aside and they take their two individual candles representing their light, their life, and they together now take those candles and light the unity candle. And then after they do that, they blow out the individual candles and there is one candle burning now, not three, but one. Why? To symbolize what we're talking about here that the two have become one flesh, the two have now become one. And I hear people today in our society all the time, well, I'm gonna lose my individuality. I'm losing who I am. Yes, in a sense you are, and you're supposed to, because the two of you are becoming one. You each have a role to fulfill. It is the most absurd thing going on in the world today that we try to say that men and women are are equal. We are equal in the sense of our rights, but we are, you know, you can't put a woman in shoulder pads and put her across on the defensive line from a 360-pound guy and say, you're equal. She's going to get killed. Men and women are, not, women are not equal in that respect. So there are differences. There are God-ordained differences that should be But when the two become one, we have roles to fulfill. We're not going into all of that this morning, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and all of that, but we're just talking about this issue here of how do we get to the issue of divorce, and that was what was on the hearts and the minds of these people who were tempting Jesus. We may think that the issue of one flesh primarily has a significance to the sexual union within the marriage relationship, and it certainly does, but there are other ways that becoming joined as one flesh take place within the context of the marriage relationship. Certainly, we become one physically through, through the sexual union, but also we become one spiritually. We become one emotionally. One person uh, who looked at the original Hebrew on this says that the, the being one flesh is literally being one person. So we're coming together, we're joining our lives together. 
And it has to do with a unity that is formed in marriage. We are coming together to be one in God, one in Christ. See, God's view was that he joined one man and one woman together before the fall of man. And therefore, God instituted marriage as his design, his plan. And it says here, as Jesus says, he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So he's saying that we as mankind do not now have the right to redefine all of that and to somehow say, here's the reasons why and and all of that that we can separate from one another and have a divorce. In fact, today in our society, and this goes all the way back, I believe, to roughly 1984 in our country, and sadly, it actually came underneath President Ronald Reagan. He was the one who instituted no-fault divorce in the state of California, which rippled across the country. And so now today, when we go to have a divorce, all we have to do is fill out a piece of paperwork and we check a box that says, irreconcilable differences. And that's our reason for divorce. So you see, we've, we've made it so easy today. So they said to Jesus, okay, well, if you're taking it back to before Moses, to, to Adam, well, of course, Moses wrote Genesis, but if you're taking it back to before the law, to what happened in creation, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And so Second issue with their view was they said, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And the issue was not that Moses had commanded. Jesus says he permitted it. The question, why why then did Moses command, revealed the misuse of Deuteronomy 24 by the Jews of Jesus' day. Moses did not command divorce, he permitted it. Similarly, God did not command retaliation, but he permitted it. God had instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden. He's not the author of divorce. Man is the originator or the author of divorce. However, to protect the Hebrew woman from being taken advantage of by a verbal divorce... Moses commanded that it be done with a certificate, meaning in writing, that is an official written contract permitting remarriage. The Jews decided to take the Deuteronomy passage as an excuse or a license to get divorced whenever they pleased. The original provision was for the protection of the wife from an evil husband, not an authorization for him to divorce her at will. Therefore, Jesus gave one exception to the no divorce intention of God, that is, immorality or sexual sin. And so Jesus defined the issue as sexual sin. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, this was, it was not so. This was not God's intention. So Jesus clearly distinguishes between command and permitted. It was not God's heart, it was not God's desire that divorce be an allowable thing to happen in society. God designed that when a man and a woman come together in the holy construct of marriage, in the covenant relationship between man between God and God between people, that God wanted it to be an everlasting relationship, a union that stood for all of time. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment and talk about something, and this is something that I do in premarital counseling with every couple that I have the privilege of working with. And here it is, because we're talking now, I'm, I'm talking now about Christian marriage, not so much marriage in general, because I can't say the things I'm about to tell you to people who do not believe in Christ. But before you come together in the marriage relationship, Christian, you husband and you wife, hopefully, have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So you know Christ before you met your your spouse, your husband or your wife, or that future mate of yours. So before you meet your spouse, before you come together in marriage, your responsibility is to maintain your relationship with the Lord, correct? Correct? To, to stay in fellowship with him, to read his word, to pray, to seek his face, to have your relationship with him. After you say, I do, 
you still need to do that. You see, you still need to walk with the Lord. That doesn't change. The dynamic may change because now there's two of you instead of one. And then when children come along, there's three, there's four, there's five, etc. But going back to before you came together, you knew the Lord and you're walking with the Lord and you're coming together in holy matrimony. You're coming together in marriage. So after you come together, you walk with the Lord. Except now you also get to do it together. If you keep that in mind, that helps us understand when Jesus says here, he he permitted it because of the hardness of heart. The issue is in marriage, we drift from the Lord. We drift from one another because we drift from the Lord. You see, if we are an individual before we come to to marriage and we're walking in fellowship with the Lord and now we come together in marriage... And I like the illustration of a triangle with God at the top and the husband and wife and the other two points of the triangle. And as we draw close to God, the the, the distance between us relationally becomes less, right? Because we're drawing close to God, right? You get the idea? We're drawing close to the Lord. We're coming closer together as we draw close to him. So this issue of Moses permitting it because of the hardness of heart, what happens is so often one of us stops walking with the Lord. We grow cold. We're no longer reading the word. We're no longer praying. We're no longer staying in fellowship with Jesus. Hopefully the other one is, but now you can see there's an imbalance. Something is happening in the relationship and someone is in growing cold is inevitable that hardness of heart will develop. And I would say to you, as I say in premarital situations, the number one problem in marriage is selfishness. The number one problem in marriage is selfishness. So hardness of heart, that's where it leads. So the Pharisees thought that Moses was promoting and validating divorce and that he was commanding it when in fact he was controlling it by permitting it only under certain circumstances. So now we come to the issue of divorce, and one person has said this about this this passage here that we're talking about. Sometimes the heart of the offending party, can be either the man or the woman, is hard. And they will not do what must be done to reconcile the relationship. Sometimes the heart of the offended party is hard, and they refuse to reconcile or to get past the offense even when there is contrition and repentance. Often, Hardness of heart is on both sides. Divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained, as a God-ordained or morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin, as evidence of hardness of heart. So Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So people often say, what does the Bible teach on divorce? Well, Matthew 19.9 is a pretty good start. When we were going through the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5, and again, you're free to to turn there if you like, but let me read two verses to you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to, to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. What does the Bible have to say about divorce? Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 5. To this permission for divorce, the Apostle Paul adds the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will be going there in a moment to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But Paul then begins to get into the situations of, okay, what do you do? Two people got married, you weren't believers, and now one of you becomes a believer. How do you deal with that? And he tries to deal with these different scenarios that can come up in life, and we will read that in a moment. We note that incompatibility or not loving each other anymore or brutality, abuse, 
these things become grounds for separation and sometimes the consequent celibacy within marriage, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 7, these words show of Paul show us that a Christian couple may in fact split up for reasons that do not justify a biblical divorce. It may be because of a misguided sense of spirituality. It could be because of general unhappiness or conflict or abuse or misery or addiction or poverty. And Paul recognizes that one might depart in such circumstances, but they cannot consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage had not split up for these reasons that Jesus has said. So these are difficult situations, difficult issues. His disciples, in listening to this debate, this discourse between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, come to the conclusion in verse 10, well, okay, if such is the case, Lord, then it's better just not to get married at all. Sort of a typical disciple response. And Jesus says, well, no, that's really not the issue. He says, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who was able to accept it, then let him accept it. So what's a eunuch? Well, in that day, a eunuch was defined as a man primarily who uh, had his genitals uh, removed, he was castrated to be exact about it, for a purpose. And that was so that he could serve uh, most often in in, uh, the court of royalty. Uh, He could preside over the the court of the harem or those kinds of things and not get involved with them. And so that was the purpose. But Jesus gave three kinds here. He mentions them in verse 12, those who are born without the capacity for sex in marriage, so maybe because of a birth defect, they are unable to have sexual relations. Those who are made by others without the capacity for sex in marriage, and that would be those who decide they wanted to have surgery and uh, be in that position that where the sex drive has been removed effectively. Or those who choose to live without sex and marriage for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That is, those who choose to act or to live as a eunuch. They've not been physically altered or don't have a birth defect. But they are choosing to remain in a state of celibacy for the purpose of serving the Lord. Now with that, I want to uh, take a turn for a moment here over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with you. So if you'd like to turn there with me. We're going to take a look at a couple of other passages since we're talking about the subject of divorce and remarriage. And then we'll come back and wrap this up with some thoughts. And I don't expect that we will answer every possible scenario or objection, but we are just dealing with the straightforward scriptures this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we are just going to read through this together, verse 1 down to 16. And you'll see here that it sort of gives you a flavor of of how do we take what Jesus said and apply it to lives. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So Paul is saying marriage is a good thing. He's not saying it for the same reason God did, but he's saying here, of course, writing to the Corinthians, they were living in a highly sexually charged culture. So he was saying, don't fall into sin. If you are prone to do that, get married. And then he says in verse three, and by the way, if you're reading from another version this morning, you'll see a difference here in just a moment that's very significant. Verse three, let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her and likewise also the wife to her husband. So the word affection there is not just being generally loving, but it's, it's referring to the intimacy of a sexual relationship. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So defining the issue that under the heading of one flesh, that husband and wife come together in this union. That, that physical one flesh aspect, the sexual union within marriage. 
And in verse 5, he says, and here's what the difference is, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Now, if you're reading from another version, it leaves and prayer out. It's very significant. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves, excuse me, at least fasting out, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is saying when we come to those difficult places in the marriage relationship, and this is one of the common areas is the physical union between husband and wife, He's saying, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. So maybe you're saying, we're going to abstain from that side of our relationship for a period of time because, as he says here, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Now, the, the versions or the different contexts, I won't get into the reasons why they, different translations have taken the word fasting out. But if you say uh, that you may give yourselves to prayer... Well, that's an honorable thing that we pray about what's going on in our marriage relationship, both individually as well as together. But how long can you pray about a given issue in your life? Some of us here could no doubt raise our hands and say we've been praying about certain issues for many years. But I believe that word fasting should be in there because it gives it a sense of immediacy and a sense of urgency that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. You see, the whole reason, and we've talked about this a number of times now, fasting brings us to a place where we deprive our our body, our flesh of something, namely food, for the purpose of seeking the Lord and drawing near to Him. So if we come to this place in our marriage relationship, and this ought to communicate to us a sense of seriousness that the Holy Spirit wants to impart to the church about how we view marriage relationships. So sacred is the the one flesh side of the marriage relationship that if we are not coming together, unless by agreement for a reason, maybe there's physical issues, you know, again, we're not trying to get into all the different reasons, but that we should come to a place of fasting and prayer while we seek the Lord. Again, we're seeking the Lord together. We're drawing near to him so that we are not thrown off so that we don't fall into temptation, so that it doesn't develop into hardness of heart or bitterness in other areas of our lives. This idea of a husband and wife coming together in the one flesh unity is something that's very important and that sort of makes marriage work. It's one of the key aspects of our relationship. So this idea of do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer communicates the seriousness of the issue and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And when we don't handle it this way, this is where not only the hardness of heart creeps in, but this is where people go off and begin to look for satisfaction outside of the marriage relationship. And it breaks down and it leads to something that's a problem and that could lead to divorce because, as Jesus said, of immorality. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, and although Paul had a wife, he had made a decision in his life as an apostle to follow the Lord without his wife, and we don't know the whole backstory on that. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But even if they cannot, um, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So this kind of gets to what Jesus was just talking about with eunuchs, that some had become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, choosing to live in a state of celibacy. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and you could reverse it, of course, uh, a wife that's unbelieving or a husband that's unbelieving, and she is willing to live with him, 
let him not divorce her. And I believe he's specifically addressing the issue of you got together, you got married, you didn't know the Lord, and you come together, and now one of you comes to know the Lord, and the other one doesn't. They, choose, they For whatever reason, they never come to the Lord. And he says, so if they are willing, live with them, let them not divorce. And if a woman who has a husband does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. People often get sort of wrapped up about what does that mean, and I believe very simply it means that if one of you is a believer and the other is not, that the, the sanctified or the setting apart of your children, which is what the word sanctified means, it just means that your children, you know, they're being raised with one parent who knows the Lord. So there's an opportunity for them to come to know the Lord. There, there's an element of Christ in your home because of that one person who is a believer, regardless of whether it's husband or wife. But if the believer departs, verse 15, let him depart a brother or sister is not under bondage in some cases, but God is, in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So what do you do about the situation where, okay, you got married, you weren't a believer, now one of, one of you weren't believers, one of you becomes a believer, you're trying to make it work, but then the unbeliever just says, look, this Jesus thing, whatever, he, I'm out. I don't want any part of this anymore. He's saying, okay, let him go. You see, God is making those provisions. God is making the application of how does this work out in our relationships. And then he says in verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses an issue that you may be familiar with. It's called being unequally yoked. And he says, how can people come together? Now, let's say you're, one of you is a believer, one of you is an unbeliever. You're in that courting or that dating phase. And he says there, as you're, you're doing that, and of course, that, that passage primarily, or the primary application was to business relationships, but it applies equally to relationships that are personal and, and coming to marriage that we don't want to be, as a believer, pursuing an intimate relationship with an unbeliever. And as I've had the, uh, the privilege to counsel people who have been in that situation, my words to them has been out of this passage of Scripture, you don't have any options till you have an option. In other words, as an, a believer, you don't have a right to pursue that unbeliever because they don't know Christ. And you're pretty much given over to the fact that your marriage is never going to work. It's just not going to work. You are, the only time I would use the word incompatible is in that situation. A believer and an unbeliever are incompatible spiritually. Because the one knows Christ and the other one doesn't. Now you can pray for that person to come to know the Lord. Certainly we should. Any of those people in our lives who don't know Christ, we want to pray that they would come to Christ but you don't have the right to pursue a relationship with an unbelieving person because the two cannot become spiritually one. It's an impossibility until that other person comes to know Christ. And he says here in verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's say you rationalize in your mind and I've watched people do this where they say, well, I'm gonna do it anyway. And I've heard people even say these words and I quote, God told me to do this because they're going to use me to save them. And I say to them, God did not say that to you because that would be a direct violation of his word. That is just you trying to justify so that you can get what you want. You cannot do that. The last place I want to go this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 3. So you can turn over there. It's toward the back of your Bible. After the book of Hebrews. So, First Peter chapter 3. Peter's been talking about beginning in chapter 2, the issue of submission to submission to government, submission to employees or employers, and now submission wives to husbands. But there's a point I want to get to here. 
So let me read that with you, First Peter chapter 3. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, so this is talking about the issue where a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And I believe this refers to the situation personally, this is my opinion, that this is a situation where they got married, they weren't believers, but the wife has come to know the Lord. And I would say, by the way, that that's probably a fairly common thing. It's probably more common that as unbelievers come together and, and one of the two gets saved, that usually the wife gets saved. And I just say that, and this is just, again, opinion, conjecture, but I think generally you ladies are a little more spiritually sensitive. And so it, I think it's more common that the wife would get saved and then now what happens? How does this work? That by their, their conduct, that their husbands might be drawn to the Lord, that they might see how she in this situation submits to her husband because she now sees herself as under the authority of the Lord. So now she's desiring to serve the Lord because she has that connection and that triangle to the Lord and she wants to serve the Lord and serve her husband in a way that draws him, softens his heart and brings him to the place that he would believe and bow his knee to Christ without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And then he goes on and he talks about your beauty being that outward adorning of arrangement of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on fine apparel. Don't let your beauty be this outward, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Why? Because she is submitting to the Lord and to her husband in probably the most unreasonable of circumstances. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God, and there's the issue, whether you are a woman or a man married to an unbelieving spouse, that you trust in God, that he is able to deal with the situation, also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So while this specifically addresses the issue of a, a believing wife living with an unbelieving husband, and even in verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, when we studied the book of Genesis a couple of years ago, you know that Abraham, while a wonderful, good, and godly man, had his moments. Sarah, we're not married right now. Lie to the Pharaoh and tell her that you're my sister. She didn't want to do that. I'm sure she objected. Who wouldn't? But she submitted under the authority of her husband, knowing that God was able to take care of him. What happened? God protected them, right? This is not justification. This is God's grace. God, in that situation, delivered them. He allowed the Pharaoh to find out. Then he said, hey, what are you doing? You're trying to bring the judgment of God on my house? You get out of here with your wife. I might have touched her and committed um, adultery with your wife. I mean, that, that was my normal practice, right? A woman comes in to my household, you know, where she's going to come to my bedroom. And this could have been an offense in the sight of God. Take your wife and get out of here. So she trusted in the Lord that the Lord was able to take care of something that she didn't agree with. So understand when we are in a marriage relationship, bringing it back to the issue that we're talking about here this morning, the issue of hardness of heart, and divorce within marriage when things come to that place. People often want to know, what do you do when you're in the situation? And, and the typical situation is the husband's being abusive. Maybe he's an alcoholic. He's beating the wife. He's beating the kids. And hey, man, you got to get out of there. You, you got to put some space. There has to be protection. But before you go down the road of divorce, you've got to go try to deal with the issues in the proper way. And I believe here the Bible is giving us a very hard thing for us to accept in our society because we're, we want to look at everything from where we are and where we live today. But you see, we need to come around to the other side and see it from God's point of view. God says, except for sexual immorality, the only reason you can divorce is sexual immorality. To divorce for those other reasons, okay, if you get a divorce, he's saying then you should remain single. You should remain separate. Now, what do you do if you've gone through all this stuff and now you, you, you've maybe, let's just say you've done it all the wrong way, so to speak. Well, you can't go back and undo it. 
just live as you are today. And that, that's a, a huge part of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, wherever you find yourself today, as you become exposed to the truth, you just deal with it. Okay, Lord, I blew it. I made a mistake. Here we are. Uh, I'm in this, quote, adulterous relationship, but it's, it's over. I did it in ignorance. I didn't know. It's just like with our sin. Lord, I sinned in my ignorance. So we don't beat ourselves up over that. We are now in the place where we just say, okay, Lord, now I know. Now I'm going to live according to your word. Now I'm going to do the right thing. It is impossible in one teaching to address every possible situation or scenario that could come up. But as Jesus said, in dealing with this, we go all the way back to the beginning. What was God's intent? To bring man and woman together. And if we put that together in the context of Ephesians 5, the marriage relationship is to be an example or a picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ with his church. So for us, even today in the New Testament, under the law of grace, it has an even greater significance that God took the man. Man was created in God's image. And God created woman from the side of man to be alongside, to be his helpmate, to be his companion. And he wanted them to be together in such a way that this marriage was a picture of who God is. We bring it into the New Testament. Husband and wife come together. The husband is to love his wife. The wife is to respect her husband. And they are to live together in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God. And that if, it, if you will, it shines a spotlight on heaven. It shines a spotlight on the throne of God saying, what we do, who we are as husband and wife is about Jesus. And I as a man and I as a woman live in such a way that it brings honor to God, just like I would have done before I came to Christ. My life is still to be about the Lord Jesus Christ, whether I'm married or whether I'm not married. In the context of marriage, even more so. We take what Amos said, two are good, but when three come together, it's, it's a strand that is not easily broken. And what is that talking about? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the person of God being wound into our relationship, the husband, the wife, and God. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. But if we allow that hardness of heart to creep in, divorce can soon be on the heels. So let us, if there's any one application point that comes out of this today, let us not drift to the place of hardness of heart. It's a danger for us when we're single. It's a danger for us when we're married. We don't want to come to the place where there's hardness of heart. And the writer of Hebrews says that we can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. When we get our eyes off the Lord and we start watching TV shows that promote, that, listen, is there any TV show out there that permits godly wholesomeness in marriage? Isn't everybody sleeping with everybody? Aren't people having multiple partners? I mean, aren't, this, this is the norm on, on television. This is not norm for us. We are called out, we are set apart, we are separated. The word of God defines who we are. The word of God defines relationships. The word of God defines how we live and move and have our being. Not the world, not television, not the courts, but God himself. So like Jesus, let us go back to the word and let the word define who we are. Let's, you know what? Let's celebrate who we are. Let's celebrate our biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Let's stop letting the world define who we are and tell us who we should be. Let the word of God define who you are and tell you who you should be. If God desires that the marriage relationship should essentially preach the gospel, then let it be. Let it be that way. See, the beauty is if we submit to the Lord and we obey him, he blesses us. Even if the other person isn't, we still do the right thing and God will bless us for it. Amen. Lord, a hard thing this morning, a tough topic, but thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for teaching it to us. And we pray, Lord, that you have ministered to us. And if there are still questions as we exit this time this morning, we trust that you will speak to us and minister to us and lead us, Lord. And Lord, if I have been 
an unwise representative and said anything that is not becoming of you, then we trust that you'll erase those tapes and allow us to move forward in wholesomeness and in truth. So Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us together in the relationships we have. And whether we today are are married or single or divorced or, or whatever, Lord, show us the path forward for our lives. Show us what's next for us. Show us how you want us to live. And may we live in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name. May we, as Paul said, live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. May we honor your name, Lord. And just as we come together in marriage and those two candles are blown out and now we become as one, so it is when we come to you, Lord. You said you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. May may we do that, Lord. May we take that seriously. And may we... As it said there in 1 Corinthians 7, if we are apart right now and are not together, then for a period of prayer and fasting, just we lay these things before you so that we might come together again. Lord, lead us, speak to us, counsel us. We love you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand and worship the Lord.